J.C. Ryle was one of the most popular, powerful preachers and scholars in England's history during the 19th century. And he was very well known for being bold. And his boldness was particularly in the area of those issues that are sometimes unsavory truths for Christians to think of, but necessary truths as well. And in his writing on sin, J.C. Ryle said the following that helps us gather our thoughts for what we want to address this morning. He says, I am convinced that the greatest proof of the extent and power of sin is in the percentity or the tendency with which it cleaves to a man even after he's converted and has become the subject of the Holy Spirit's operations. So deeply planted are the roots of human corruption that even after we are born again, renewed, washed, sanctified, justified, and made living members of Christ, these roots remain alive in the bottom of our hearts. And like leprosy in the walls of the house, we never get rid of them until the earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved. Sin, no doubt, in the believer's heart has no longer dominion. It is checked and controlled and mortified and crucified by the power of a new principle of grace. The life of a believer is the life of victory and not a failure. But the very struggles which go on within his bosom, the fight that he finds it needful to fight daily, the watchful jealousy which he is obligated to exercise over his inner man, the contest between the flesh and the spirit, the inward groanings, which no one knows but he who has experienced them, all, all testify to the same great truth, all show the enormous power and vitality of sin. Mighty indeed must that foe be, who even when crucified is still alive. I begin this morning with those thoughts because This psalm, the psalm that we have been exploring, Psalm 39, if you have your Bibles, you can open to that psalm. Psalm 39, that we've been studying for the past few Sundays, this is the very heart of the message of this great treatise from the great King David. Namely this, not only do believers sin, but also believers must endure at times the consequences for their sin, even once they're forgiven. We're going to unpack that thought and come to it this morning as we go back to a message titled Part 4 of the Sinner's Desperate Cry for Help in Light of the Incredible Briefness of Time. Because that really does summarize what it is that David is saying. The sinner has a desperate cry for help because of the incredible briefness of time, needs help, and sees that as a result of God's chastening in their life. So this morning we come to part four of this magnificent psalm and we're going to look at the different reactions that David had to this chastening of his own heart. And we've gone over this for the past three weeks and now I'm going to just give you a quick overview of what we've done and then enter into the last part of this wonderful psalm to conclude our study of it. What we looked at were different responses to God's chastening, different ways that a believer could respond to his chastening, and definitely the way that David responded to what happened to him because of the sin that's not disclosed in the psalm. We first saw that God's chastening can create a superficial silence in the believer, and we saw that from the first two verses, and let me give this to you as a review 
I said, I will keep watch over my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will keep watch over my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute with silence. I even kept silent from speaking good and my anguish grew worse. From the very beginning, David is saying that because he was being chastised, as we shall see later on in this text, because God was disciplining him, his reaction to such things was to keep his mouth quiet, to shut his mouth. In other words, you can commit yourself to never allowing anyone ever to hear you catch or express your sin verbally, but it is just kind of a surface or superficial kind of repentance because the real issue for the believer always is the heart. So though the sin that David is dealing with that we're going to unpack moment by moment here is that that kind of sin that is in his heart and not quickly available to those that see him, he says that the way he dealt with it in the beginning, this sin issue in his speech was by stop talking, by not speaking, by keeping quiet. In other words, you can convince me to not speak again. You can put your hand over your mouth. You can pretend that the problem that you have in your heart has gone away. But eventually, the silence is going to break and the issues of the heart come out. But in the beginning, this is how David responded to the chastisement of God. You can be silent all you want, but that doesn't necessarily lead you to repentance. That's why the silence is superficial. It might be necessary, but it's a band-aid, a band-aid on an artery. And that struggle that David feels here and is experiencing is deep and it's complex. But the main issue, as we have been seeing, is that his belief in keeping silent was real and perhaps necessary, but it was unsustainable. And we know that because of the second reaction that we see in this text, the second response to God's discipline in the life of a believer when they sin. And that is not only does it sometimes create a superficial silence, but number two, God's chastening can grant spiritual perspective, not just a superficial silence, but a spiritual perspective. And we see that in the next few verses, verses three through six. He goes on to say, my heart was hot within me. While I meditated, the fire was burning. And then I spoke with my tongue. Yahweh caused me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely every man, even standing firm, is altogether vanity. Selah. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. He's saying here already in the very beginning of these verses that that silence that had been produced in the beginning because of his chastisement by God, the silence that was happening because of the wicked people around him and he didn't want to speak, eventually had a shelf life. And this shelf life had to happen because it was a superficial silence he had. He couldn't take it anymore. His heart was on fire and therefore he had to utter a prayer. And it wasn't a silent prayer this time. It was a verbal plea to God because he needed to know, namely, how much longer do I have to live under this kind of discipline? How much longer do you have for me, O God? 
That's what was on his heart. He needed to know, verse 4, what was his end? What is the extent of my days? How much longer are you going to give me life if this is the kind of life that I live? So David was not just here expressing a desire to know how much longer he was going to live because of God's discipline, though that was clearly the point, but rather he's pleading with God to show him some spiritual perspective about the remaining time he had on earth. So David knows, as he says, my life's transient. My my life is is fleeting. It's a vapor, as I even mentioned this morning, that that goes away a little while like a, a cup of coffee, the steam rolling off of it. He knows that intellectually, and he knows that because of his theology, but he also knows it experientially because we all have seen men and women die. We all have seen memorial service after memorial service, men and women again over and over leaving this earth. But now in the crucible of his suffering, this transient nature of his own life has become more vivid to him. Now, as he's living through this chastisement of God, he acknowledges, my life is short. And in fact, it's even shorter. More commentators than not would say that this is him when he was in his older years as he speaks. His acknowledgement is that because now I'm close to death, death seems more real to me. I can taste it. I can see it. I can sense it. And he's asking God to make that reality even more real to him, even more clear so he can grasp the utter momentary quality of this life. He moves from that spiritual perspective to a third reaction to God's chastisement, a third response to being disciplined by God. Not only was it producing at first a superficial silence in him and then a spiritual perspective in him, but now a third we saw his response to God's chastening is that God's chastening can produce a substantial confession a substantial confession, and we see that in verses 7 through 11. And now, Lord, what do I hope in? My expectation is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the wicked fool. I have become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me because of the opposition of your hand. I am wasting away. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is vanity, selah. So you see here in these verses what I call a substantial confession. The reason I say that, that it's substantial, is because it's encompassing so much of his life. The, the cry for forgiveness, the, the recognition of chastening. Yes, I am being chastened because of what God has done. The discipline has come upon me because of the Lord. And David is experiencing and openly admitting the confession of his own soul. God is ultimate. God is sovereign. All of these things are happening to me because of him. It is because of you that I was trying to be silent. There's no use resisting you. My life is in your hands. And so David, under the weight of this realization, under the load of truth that mounts up over and over in his heart, under the reproach of not only wicked men who surround him, but also because of God who surrounds him as well, it says in verse 8, he confesses his sin, he pleads for deliverance, 
And then he ends with some observations about the delicate, transitory nature of mankind as he has done before. It is on his mind, the briefness of this life under the weight of God's discipline. But now, this morning, we come to the last part of this psalm, the last part of this mighty, in fact, writing of King David. And that is not only as we go through God's discipline can we experience, number one, his superficial silence, the silence that we have towards God because we don't know what to do with our sin. Number two, the spiritual perspective that is gleaned from this kind of discipline, leading to a substantial confession. And now, number four, David is going to tell us how God's chastening can promote a supernatural boldness, a supernatural boldness. And we're going to see that in just the last two verses of Psalm 39. Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a foreign resident like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I go and am no more. This is the culmination of the entire psalm. This is the culmination of David's entire prayer. This is, in truth, the grand climax that he's been speaking of thus far. And when you reach this this conclusion in verse 12, you realize that it has taken the entirety of this psalm for him to finally come to this place in his prayer where now... He is beseeching God, he's praying to God, petitioning God, and pleading with what he calls my cry for help. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry for help. It's so shocking in some ways because many commentators, when they look at this section, will mention that it's surprising that he took this long to petition Yahweh. It's surprising because more common than not, both with the prayers of David, and also with the prayers of us in this room, the saints of God, we, we tend to have that confession or that statement of prayer come earlier in our prayers. Strange sheep of God would make a request to God much earlier in their prayers. You see this in Psalm 4, Psalm 17, Psalm 54, Psalm 55, Psalm 61, and others, where again, David front loads the prayer with his need. But for David, for some reason in this psalm, it's taken 11 verses for him to come to this place where he has boldness. He has finally built up the boldness to make him cry for this kind of help in the way that he does. After all of the reactions that could have made his life miserable, after all of the ways that he's responded to God's chastening on his life, after all of the silence and spiritual insights and the musings about the brevity of life, and the confession of sin, and finally you come to this grand conclusion that moved David to pray in the first place. Namely, he needed help. He needed help from God. David needs help from the only source that could possibly grant him the needs of his heart. He needs help like you need help, like I need help. He, he goes in this particular prayer and makes it clear that the help that he needs is from the Lord, and it's in the assurance of his listening that he speaks. He wants to know that God hears him. He wants to know that God cares for him. 
He wants to know that God is willing to remove and move on his behalf and deliver him from the consequences of his sin. He knows he's sinned. He knows that he deserves what is what he has gotten. But he's asking God now to hear him as he beseeches him. He is so desperate. He is so desperate as just a mere mortal man that he has to lift his eyes to heaven and he reaches out to the only true God for relief from the pit that he himself has dug for himself. Now, before we look at the particulars of these two verses, it's important that you understand that the goal of God's correction is this. This is the goal of every act of pruning and discipling and and discipline that comes from our king. And what is that? Namely, that we might humble our sinning hearts and see our wicked condition and then be moved in our souls to open our mouths, bow our knees toward the only hope that we have, which is the Lord. Now, once you look at the context, once again, to reestablish in your mind the catalyst for this supernatural boldness that he has, and I call it supernatural boldness because any time a man or a woman repents from their sin in the New Testament, it tells us that this too is a work of God that this is a supernatural work of God in the human heart. If you want to, you could go to, not now but later, 2 Timothy 2.25. And it says that when we repent, we see that it's God who is granting us repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. It's a very important text that repentance comes from God allowing that to happen in the human heart. It is God that gives us the ability for all believers to turn from their sin. It's God that allows us the ability to see iniquity in our lives and to change our lives. And this is true not only for the greater repentance, the capital R repentance, as I often say, that grants life, but also is the lowercase r repentance, that's ongoing repentance that every believer has for the duration of our lives. We are always repenting, always repenting, and every time that we do that throughout the entirety of our life on earth, it is a gift of God. It is an ability from God, supernatural ability to see ourselves for who we are and to repent from the sin we've committed. So wherever an individual is allowed the blessing, and it is a blessing to see your sin for what it is, a sin against the creator who made you, an act of lawlessness against the only true and living God, an act of not only turning from that sin, but also the desire to turn unto God from that sin is in itself a supernatural gift from God. So you understand what I'm saying? Even though God may paint you into a corner, and he will, even though God might allow all of the devastation and the consequences of your sin to come upon you and me, it still takes a kind of supernatural boldness to come before him, to plead with the Holy One of heaven, a boldness that's born out of pain and suffering and the deep desire to be right with God. But again, back to the context here. In the verse right before this section, and we repeated it last time, but didn't dwell on it deeply. We have in verse 11, something that David speaks from his own experience when he says that this discipline is from God. These reproofs, in other words, these these reprimands that come from the Holy One had come upon him for his sin, for his iniquity, 
It was indeed a chastisement from God. He was being reproofed, he says in verse 10, the bottom part of it, because of the opposition, that's your reproof, I'm wasting away, with reproofs you've chastened a man for iniquity. Because of this particular chastening, because this particular discipline comes from the Lord and was so intense in David's life, he compares it to a moth that consumes what is precious treasure to us. Consume literally in the Hebrew means a melting away. He, he just melts away everything that is precious. So your correction of me, O oh God, is like what it feels like when you realize that what we hold on to, what we gain and crave and value as we desire what we desire in this world, as we hold on to those prized possessions, his discipline, because of his great love, will melt away everything you hold dear, just like a moth. Now, you may not know this. If, if you do, that's a very special thing. There's two kinds of moths. There's one kind of moth that's called a case-making clothes moth. And then there's another called a, a, a webbing clothes moth, who are the famous fabric eaters. And both species are known to eat natural cloth fibers found in clothes and curtains and carpets and bed sheets and upholstery. They can even devour wood, cotton, silk, cashmere, and lint. Why do I tell you this? Because the meaning here is this. Whatever earthly possessions you might have in your midst, and we all come from different levels of, of affluence. We all have different levels of either uh, comfort or, or pain when it comes to the things that we own. Whatever physical treasures that you might cling to in this life is ultimately nothing but food for moths. Because it passes away. It passes away. In the book of Matthew, Jesus gives us some powerful, thought-provoking teachings about this relationship with material possessions. And one of the most striking passages is in Matthew 6, 19. I'll read it for you. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Our Lord says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Hosea 5.12, the moth is also used as a symbol for the destruction of the people of Ephraim. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. In the book of Job, as we have studied, moths are a symbol of human frailty. In Isaiah, they signify the destruction of God's enemies. So overall, the point of what he's trying to say here in context, building toward this very bold proclamation towards God, is this. It's a symbolic reminder of the temporary nature of material wealth and the need for us to prioritize spiritual values in the life to come. So in David's experience, God is a moth, if you will. God is the consuming one. God is the one who takes what is precious from him. God is the one hiding in the closet next to your designer clothing, 
next to your expensive wardrobes and slowly but surely is eating away and consuming them nothing until nothing happens and you wake from your sleep and you see that there are holes in the things that you thought were so wonderful. It's God who is the one who disciplines and pries our fingers away from grasping those treasures that we have taken to prove to ourselves that life is permanent, but life is fleeting, verse 11. Life is fleeting. Surely every man and woman and child is vanity. It's just a vapor that rises for a moment and disappears into thin air. And that idea makes him pause. That makes him selah. All of this is slowly but surely created this great swelling tide of God's correction upon his life that David now has been moved because of all that he's known, because of what's happened that, again, is undescribed. And I told you before, I believe it's undescribed, perhaps for the reason so that you can see yourself in this psalm. So it's not just David's experience of life, it's your experience of life. And so because we don't know the exact sin that God is disciplining him for or correcting him for, we now come to a place where he goes, I need supernatural boldness because my mouth was once closed my mouth once did not cry out but now I must cry out in desperation and that can only come my help from this covenant keeping God that calls himself Yahweh I'm really indebted to the legacy standard Bible because they had the wisdom to translate the name of God Yahweh into passages where you can see when the cry of the writer becomes personal. And it's so helpful. Notice in verse 4, he cries out to Yahweh by his name. And then in verse 5, just the pronoun you. And then again, verse 7, it is Lord and you. And verse 9, you have done it. Verse 10, your plague me, you plague me. Verse 11, you chastise me. But again, here in verse 12, it's back to Yahweh. There are times that we are so moved and needing for God's help that we have to speak specifically to the great I am that I am. We speak to him by name. It's essential. And David knew his name, and David knew that it was essential. And what he wants from this Yahweh God, this most personal covenant-keeping Lord, is for him to hear him. Just hear me. I'll never forget an episode in my life where a friend of mine told me that being heard... Being heard was the most important need that men and women possess. And I'd never heard that before. And he went on to say, you can disagree with me. You can believe I'm wrong or that I'm foolish in what I say. But as long as I know that you have received what I've said, as long as you grasp what it is that I am trying to communicate to you, then I can live with the results. But I must first know that you hear me, not just the words themselves, but the weight of what it is I'm trying to say is the most important part of human communication, being heard and being understood. I think in my experience of life, as well as in David's, that being heard is paramount. Not that you need to agree, not that you need to disagree, but that you understand where I'm coming from. And that was David's reply to God. 
David says here, I am praying to Yahweh, verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry for help. I am crying out to God for help. You must cry to God for help. Let me know that you hear me. At least let me know that you are sensitive to what's broken in me. Know that my tears are not met with just indifference from heaven or disdain. See my face. See, I'm crying. I am crying and let me know that I matter to you, that the ache of my heart matters to you. So you see, there's a certain kind of holy boldness in doing that. There's a certain kind of holy boldness in praying to God in this way. At first, David kept silent. He was in front of wicked men. He couldn't speak. Men who hated him. Men who loathed him. And he kept his mouth shut because he understood they're not going to listen to him. And even if I speak about what's going on in my heart, you're going to know that it's the Lord God, Yahweh, that has done this to me. And you're going to attribute to my God some kind of erroneous injury on my behalf. He understood his words would definitely fall on deaf ears with them. But once... The fire in his heart became too great to suppress. He shifts his attention away from the foes that are in front of him, and he goes to the God who is above him, and he cries out from earth to his friend in heaven. But even then, because of just the transitory nature of his existence, all he could ask for is just wisdom to understand the shortness of my life. Just help me to know God, the God who has made me a handbreadth in verse 5, he knows that to him all people are just walking shadows on earth. We're just walking shadows that reflect a shadow because we're temporary. And now he knows I need to be heard. I need to be heard by you, O God. I need to be heard by the great God of my life. And what he wants to be assured of, first, verse 12a, is that you know that I need help to overcome my sin. I need help to overcome my sin. And second, in verse 13, I need to know that I can't take much more of this discipline that you've allowed in my life. Please know that. Please know that I can't take much more. Do you see that? Turn your gaze away from me that I may smile again before I go and am no more. What is probably more bold than praying for Yahweh to hear my prayer is for Yahweh to stop gazing at me. Stop looking at me. This is a supernatural boldness, if you will. I ask you to hear me as if I have the right to insist on it, though I don't. I am your child, but I ask you to hear me. And then I ask you to stop looking at me with your disciplining eyes, even though I know I deserve it. You know, when we studied Job, if you were here with us, you may remember that he said something very similar in Job 7.19 when he said, Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? Or even more directly later, he says in Job 10.20, Turn away from me so I have a moment's joy before I go to the place of no return, to to the place of gloom and deep shadow, which was Job's understanding of death in that dispensation. But this is a prayer of a man who believes that his life is under the discipline of the Lord, which it is, and he longs for that discipline to cease because I've suffered enough. I know I deserve it. I know that you're righteous and holy. And yet, please, I've repented. I've acknowledged my sin. I've admitted my wrong. 
And so he doesn't understand what more that there is that he can do to stop this plague, as he calls God's discipline. Verse 10, this plague, remove it from me. So he boldly but meekly cries out for help from the only one that can make a difference. You know, this is important, very important for us to understand. You know, sometimes it is the will of God for you to continue in the consequences of your sin and to allow that to linger way past the point even when forgiveness has been granted and restoration has been established. Let me say that again. It is the will of God to continue for you to continue to, for him to continue to allow the consequences of your sin to linger even past the point of forgiveness and restoration. What does that mean? Sometimes our Lord allows the continuing effect of his chastisement in our life to permeate our our lives even though we've prayed and wrestled and cried with Yahweh because the consequences of our sin may still linger. And I want you to think about this. We believe that forgiveness and restoration has not yet happened unless all the clouds have parted and the rain stops. We believe that it should be that once we say, you got me, I'm wrong, forgive me, I realize what I've done, I've sinned against you and you only, like he says to, to God concerning Bathsheba. We think that should be the end, but that's not how it works. This is what you might call the echo of iniquity. The echo of iniquity. In other words, even though the shout of sin has ceased and communion with God is reestablished, the echo of what we have done still bounces off the canyons around us. But the sound of its effect remains much longer than we had hoped for. It reminds me of the man in Corinth that had sinned at the church, and Paul had instructed the church to remove such a man from their midst. But once the man had repented and turned from his sin, it seems as if the echo of his behavior, the the lingering effects of what it is that he had done resulted in the church not accepting him back. They, They still understood and felt what it is that he had done. And Paul says to the church in 2 Corinthians 2, 7, that you should rather graciously forgive and comfort him lest such a one be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. In other words, the echo of iniquity still lingers way after we have turned from our sin. And that in and of itself is a very dramatic reminder to us that you must, I must, we must forsake sin before it forsakes us. So David cries out for him his tears and he notices his situation to be remembered. And what is his situation? Verse 12c, I'm just passing through. I am just, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner, I'm just like my dad and my dad's dad and everyone else in my family line. I'm a pilgrim and it's brief and I'm traveling through this world with you, O Lord. I belong to you. He says, I am a sojourner, verse 12c, with you. I am a foreign resident like all my fathers before me. 
And so, oh Lord, you know how little time I have left. So please let me smile. Let me just smile once more and take away my frown and take away my misery because the moments left in me are so few and my burdens are so many. There are people here even this morning who are still dealing with the echo of their sin. They have examined themselves and they have gone to the Lord in prayer and they've gone to the people they have sinned against and they've been forgiven and they've been restored to fellowship. But the lasting echo of the consequences of their actions are still lingering in their lives. And so that echo of iniquity now acts as an incentive to pray for something more than just restoration. But now they pray for joy. Please bring me back Joy, David said it in Psalm 51, 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Even what had happened with Uriah and Bathsheba, all that had happened in his life with the death of his son, all of that made David in Psalm 51 cry out, please give me joy. I might be forgiven, but my life is miserable. Just because sin has been forgiven doesn't mean the scars fade away. When I was five years old, I was given a bike, a Schwinn bicycle that didn't have any handle grips in it. And though I'd been warned very carefully, be careful when you ride. One day I was riding in and out of the garage and there was an oil spill and I fell on it and that handlebar hit my face and split my chin wide open, and I was rushed to the doctor. I received 16 stitches to sew up that little bloody mess, and my father picked me up from the hospital with two beautiful bicycle grips (laughs) that were blue. And I was happy to see the handlebars with these new grips, but, but the scar never went away. It remains on my face to this day. It's a small reminder of my childish ways that just don't fade away. When my boys were young, I remember Lori and I had set up a way that we would deal with their disobedience when it would come. I would walk upstairs after they had disobeyed up those dreaded steps that was similar to dragging a dog in the opposite direction that it wants to go. And I would sit them on my knee as they cried, And I would remind them of what happened and what was going to happen and why it was going to happen. And then after the discipline and the tears had ceased, I would put them back on my knee and I would quote them Proverbs 3.12, that the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father reproves his son in whom he delights. And when they were in trouble... Sometimes that made sense to them, but their bodies, their bottoms still hurt. (laughs) That is how it is with us and God's discipline. He disciplines us out of love. He disciplines us because, as his word says, that we are his children, and like a father who loves us, he will 
chastise us, discipline us, move us back into right standing with him. But that doesn't change the fact, Christian, that you may still suffer and suffer and suffer because the lingering effects of the echo of iniquity don't go away instantly. And so we learn from David how it is that we should respond to these chastening moments, these moments of correction. At first, perhaps it is that we are silent and we're stunned because we do not want the world around us to know what God is doing to us. But eventually we have to cry out. We have to go to our Father and tell Him exactly what's on our heart. We have to ask for spiritual perspective to understand what is the length of our days, to even understand that we are just passing through as pilgrims. And then hopefully we long for the fact that through this confession, we might be granted boldness to ask even for those things that perhaps children are wary of. We ask our Father who's in heaven that we might be able to not only be forgiven, but that we might have a sense of the fact that he hears us, meaning, please take away the consequences and the effects of what we have done. But it doesn't always work that way. And because of that, God is still gracious, though you're forgiven, though we're in this room and we're still grappling, some of you, with children who have left your home. Perhaps it was something that you said. Perhaps it was something they said. And you, to this day, grapple with the effect that you don't see them. It could be in your marriage where there was that horrible thing that was said, that inexcusable language that uttered out of your mouth that you couldn't retrieve fast enough. And now you're separated or perhaps even divorced because of what you've done, though forgiven, though God has come in and assured you through his word that you stand rightly with him, there's this massive separation in relationships in your life. So what is God's remedy for that? Be encouraged that God, the God who loves you, will work all of these things together for your good, even though the pain is sometimes almost without ending a painful, incredible, discipling moment of being molded into his image. So take heart, as David had to take heart. Our days are numbered. It should be a preventative measure against sin, should it not? It should be a way of thinking about our sin to where, Lord, I know what will happen, and I know even, Lord, that you will forgive me. But I also know that my life may never be the same. And that with that consequence, the echoes of my iniquity come circumstances and issues that I am not equipped for. So stop me from sinning against you before it's too late. Let's pray. Father, we come here with the scriptures in so many ways, in so many different chapters, speaking of the same thing. We We cry to you because we know that we are mere shadows. We are convinced by experience and by your word that our lives are so short, so brief. And yet we also find in ourselves the principle of sin still operative, even in believers. 
that we still can sin even at times in ways that is so disgraceful that we don't even want to tell anyone because we recognize how awful it would be to see us as children of God being found in iniquity like we've done. So I do pray, Lord, that this would be a preventative measure for us, that we would review the consequences of our own sin, the kind of consequences that David could not escape from even in his own life, though he was a man after your own heart, and realize that this will be true for us as well. Keep us from saying the things that we ought not to say. Keep us from feeling the scandalous thoughts that we ought not to think. Help us, Lord, to walk obediently out of the fear of you and the love of you and the reverence of you because of the sacrifice that you have offered to us in Christ. And Father, I pray for anyone here who sees their life perhaps as not just a chastisement by you, but perhaps as punishment, punishment for sin. Help them to know that no one is punished for sin that has claimed your son who has been granted repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That punishment is not what you give to the believer, but chastisement and correction We ask that you would keep us safe from that. Draw us close. Help us to learn. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.